Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. I'm friends, how are you doing today? If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. Really great to have you here today as we continue to wrestle with this series on relationships. I just got to go away for a week, which was delightful. I went to Florida with my family. Many of you kindly asked, was it restful? Uh, and no, I took four children. Uh, so it wasn't restful, but it was wonderful. And, and, but it's great to be back with you. Uh, Do we have any deeply patriotic Americans that were still just enough Anglophile that you got up and watched the coronation yesterday? I don't know if there may be a couple of you around. There we go. Uh, I, of course, did uh, with a a very excited five-year-old. And I've discovered that my son Jude is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of just interesting interactions. And so uh, as we got up, he saw this incredible sight and he said, that's like the fairy tale carriage. That's where they got it from. I said, well, no, no, I think they got the idea for fairy tales from this carriage. I think this maybe came first. But, but as, the, serv- as the, the service, the coronation progressed, there were a couple of details that came up that he was a little bit, a little bit concerned about. Because he's heard me talk about the queen for many years, and he's, heard me sh- he's had me show pictures. Uh, and he knows that she died. He, she, he had to watch the funeral. Uh, but he also knows that she wears a crown and carries a stick um, with diamonds in it. Uh, And so as we went through this ceremony yesterday, he noticed the queen no longer has the stick. The king has the stick and he wants to know why is that, why is it that the king king now has the wand, as he likes to call it. Uh, And I tried to explain the the system of hereditary monarchy. Um, So I said, well, The old queen was the son of the old king. The new queen is just the husband of the new king. Not the son of the old king, the daughter of the old king. (laughs) Get that right, I think. Apparently I don't understand the system myself. (laughs) And I'm trying to help him understand just why it works the way it works. That now she's the queen for a different reason. She doesn't get the wand anymore. And you can see him trying to process this and trying to to grasp it. And in the end, you can see there's this moment where he loses interest in the perks or the benefits of hereditary monarchy. Uh, And he just looks at me and says, does he do magic with that wand? (laughs) And I said, who knows, maybe. It looks pretty magical. So Jude is young enough that I don't have to pay him for stories yet and it's the gift that keeps on giving. In this series, we are wrestling with the connection between a you and a me in terms of relationship, especially the relationship of marriage. Think about how distinct this relationship is. You with all of your stuff, all of your desires, all of your quirks, at some point might decide to attach yourself to somebody else who has their own quirks, their own stuff, and the two become one in a particular way. A me meets a you, and then there's this middle ground that we're wrestling with, this Venn diagram part that's all of the ways that your lives interact and overlap with each other. This relationship is distinct because it will draw out your flaws in a way that no other relationship will. Now, your parents, they know you have flaws. They knew you have flaws. Your friends, they know you have flaws. Your coworkers know that you have flaws, but they, they don't know it in the same way 
that a husband or wife will know them. Take something very innocuous like my propensity to leave open every drawer or cupboard that I have ever opened. I don't know what it is, but something happens with my brain. I move on quick. And so I've got my thing and I'm gone and the drawer remains open. The cupboard remains open and somebody has to come alongside me and close it after me. Now, I'm sure that this has irritated the office staff here. I know that it's irritated my parents, but not in quite the same way that it gets my wife because she's dealt with it for 14 years and she's alone. And now she has three or four children that do the same thing that their dad does and the thing just builds and builds and builds and builds. There's something about marriage that has a way of pulling out or, or demonstrating flaws, puts them up for show. And so your husband or wife, they'll know your flaws in a way that nobody else ever will. Jesus says that when two get married, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's the same thing in word form that our diagram is attempting to demonstrate. Two people come together and there's a connection that is beyond any other connection of no other relationship. And we'll wrestle with this next week. Of no other relationship does the Bible say you two become one flesh in the way that it does about marriage. And because of just how complex this is, Jesus and one of his earliest followers, Paul, are both very transparent about how difficult marriage is. They give plenty of reasons. You may not want to enter into it. If you do, it will cost you. They say it comes with some stuff you have to decide you want. Relationships are hard work. Relationships they're challenging. Uh, Mae West, the actress, once said this, marriage is a great institution. I'm just not ready to be put in an institution. It just <laughs> reflects some of the difficulty there. As I was gathering sources for this uh, sermon, I love to just drop in in different places and ask people questions. And I was in a store the other day and asked a, a lovely lady, just tell me a little bit about you know, your story of being married. She said, oh, I've been married for 50 years. You know, the other day my husband said this, We've been married for 50 years, and it feels like it's been five minutes. Underwater. <laughs> it just gets to the heart of, right? Marriage has challenges. It is difficult. It is two people colliding with each other and joining each other at the same time. So our mantra over and over again has been, relationships are hard work, so let's work hard at our relationships as we continue to progress. We've set some groundwork. Now there's some challenges, some things to do together to get better at this. But let me say this, when Jesus paints this picture of marriage, he paints it as being the, the, most, the central relationship other than relationship with God, and he suggests it's lifelong. So we've wrestled with that. And let me just acknowledge this in the room. There is pain and there is heart, and marriages become broken, and so many of you have been through that. And so what we've tried to reinforce every single week is this idea. God's love is greater than your relationship status. God's love is greater than your relationship status. Wherever you have been, whatever you have been through, you have been through it. And God is working to bring about new stories, which is what he always does. One of the fascinating things to me about this beautiful Jesus story is this, is that God is deeply concerned about sin, 
But once it's been forgiven, it seems like he doesn't want us to think about it very much at all. There's passages that say things like this. He has buried that sin in the sea of his forgetfulness. It seems that God is far more interested in how we are acting today and how we might act tomorrow than how we acted many years ago. And so whatever your story is, know this. God's love, it is greater than your relationship status that God specializes in bringing new stories out of old stories. The writer Andy Andy Stanley says this, following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. I don't know if I agree with the first part of the sentence. I've met lots of people in different parts of the world who would say, on some objective measure, following Jesus has made my life far more complicated. It's made it more difficult. Has it brought wondrous joy? Yes, but there are aspects that have been a challenge. There's been a cost to following Jesus. We can't rule that part out. But the second part, I think I do agree with. I think there is something about following Jesus that invites you to live in a particular way, and that way leads to being better at life. Think about his broad command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we do that to the people in closest proximity to us, which is what neighbor means, then we'll have better relationships. Now, we can't control what the other person does, but if we're in a marriage with two people moving towards Jesus... On one level, it should make us better at being married. Christians, I would suggest, should have the best marriages, the best friendships, the best relationships with their neighbors, all of those different things. And yet, I have friends, and I know people that would say, we are two people, both desperately trying to move towards Jesus. And I don't know what's going on, but it feels kind of like funky, like difficult, like we're struggling. And we don't always know why. What I would suggest is this. Sooner or later, most marriages experience a split. I'm not talking about a divorce, though that can be it. I just mean that as you go through this journey of being married, there's moments where you suddenly have a revelation. It feels like we've been building something. And we've kind of been putting pieces in place. And then there's maybe a moment where we're like, have we been using the same instruction manual? And of course, the guy's like, wait, there's an instruction manual? That would make marriage so much easier. But, but it feels like we're struggling, and it doesn't feel like the thing is functioning well. In that moment, the temptation is to kind of tiptoe around it and not mess with it too much. In case just the last little bit of life and stability disappears in the midst of it, we can get awfully quiet in those moments. But I think almost every marriage goes through some of those moments where we look at the other person and say, are we on the same page at all? Are we even reading the same book? When I was doing ministry in Michigan, there was a pastor that lived down the road and he tells a story about how his wife came to him and said, I want to ask you a question can you rate our marriage from one to 10? Now on the surface, it seems like a fairly innocuous question, like a would you rather question or something like that. But it was said in a tone of voice that that caused him to think something may be up. And so they both wrote down on a piece of paper how they would rate their marriage. And so I brought some paper. And we'll call him John and call her Jane, I guess. And so he went first and he wrote his number. And then she went and she wrote her number. And so he said this 
I would give our marriage a nine out of 10. It's going great. And the only reason I'm not saying 10 is that seems kind of arrogant. And she said, huh, that's interesting. That's not a number. She said, I would give our marriage this. It's dying. It's a mess. Two people, same marriage, and one says we're flourishing, we're thriving, everything is going good, and the other says, this thing is killing me. There is no life in this thing. What is going on? And they were talking on the macro, but any marriage in this room or any future marriage or any past marriage could do this over any area of marriage, not just the macro, but every individual thing. How we manage our finances, one to 10. How our sex life is, one to 10. How we do with communication, one to 10. And what we realize quickly is that there's moments where we find we've kind of split in the road and it feels like we're waving to each other across the other side of the valley. One person feels one way and the other person feels the other way. And we're like, what, what's going on here? Maybe one person knows it and the other person doesn't, but there's these tension points where we realize something is off on this structure. The writer Jordan Peterson says this, marriage is either tyranny or chaos. Is either tyranny or chaos. There's a structure that's being built and, and one person just decides what it looks like and says, this is what it is. And you have to deal with it. You don't get a say. Or nobody decides what it is and it's just we're throwing pieces together at random and eventually people start to question does this thing even work and maybe you would say as a married person I see some of those tendencies in me I see places at least where one person does all the decision making and I feel kind of voiceless in that or maybe you see places where you say no we we can acknowledge this thing is Chaos, nobody knows how much we spend. Some money comes in, some money goes out. We hope at the end of the day it all works out okay and the number's black and not red. In some circles, at least, the, the Christian faith has tended to push marriages a little bit into the world of tyranny. We read passages like these that we'll try and unpack just a little. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, if you've got a text Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. There's this picture that's created when you start from verse 22 of a wife who is submitting and a husband who is perhaps something in worst case scenario, close to a tyrant. He decides what the structure looks like. He decides how the marriage is built and, and you're left to just continue to work it out. Is that the picture that God paints of marriage? Now, the writer does go on to say, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Doesn't it create a picture of a husband who does, who makes things happen, and a wife who perhaps a little bit is there submitting and along for the journey. 
It certainly has been argued that way by some people in history. Now, if you have a marriage that you would say, we operate on what's called a complementarian basis. We have a husband who takes the lead role. It's male headship. I'm absolutely fine with that. And if you have a marriage that says we're egalitarian, I'm absolutely fine with that. But I'm saying that you can take this text back here and you can abuse that as much as you like. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And that word in Greek, hypotasamino, is, is this idea of to place or rank yourself under. Is that the role of a wife in a Christian marriage? Is that how it's supposed to work? Well, there's a problem with this text. The problem with this text is that verse 22 that we just read, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, doesn't actually have the word submit in it. It's been added to it. In Greek language, it's just not there. You only get the word submit if you begin from verse 21. So if you have a text in front of you, you can look and see where verse 21 appears in your text. And sometimes it's separated from verse 22. And in more modern versions, it's usually together. But that is the time that the word submit is mentioned. And it says this. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can you imagine what hearing this text felt like in the first century? Just for a second, as much as you know, picture a first century world. This church starts building and starts getting energy, and all of these people start joining it. There's people from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds. There's the poor and those on the margins, and there's some people that are wildly wealthy. There's people that own businesses and people that work in those businesses. There's husbands and wives, and all of these people come together, and there's this distinct sense of where everybody ranks because that's how society worked. You knew where you sat in the pecking order of things. And then this writer turns up and sends you a letter that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Imagine what a slave owner feels when he hears that. You who are now in church with a slave, submit to them. You husband who are used to controlling everything, submit to your wife. You business owners, submit to you em your employees. You rich persons, submit to the poor. And vice versa, submit everyone to each other. How do you do that in a world that's so centered around hierarchy and knowing where you land? And yet Paul says, no, this is how church works. Everyone chooses to place themselves under the other. Everyone chooses to sit back and let the other person shine. It's only in that context that we read in verse 22, wives to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. The submit peace is inferred. And then husbands through loving your wives as Jesus loves the church. It seems what Paul says is everyone's called to submit. And how do you do that? Well, wives, you do that to your husbands as though you're doing it to the Lord as gladly as you do it to the person who died for you and saved you. And, and husbands, will you love your wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. The same way that this God of the universe stepped down from all of his authority and power and washed feet and died on a cross, you love in that same way. When you think about what you long for in a spouse, doesn't that encapture some of it? And doesn't it feel easy to love the person who exemplifies some of those things? That's the, Paul, the, the picture Paul paints. In 
First Corinthians chapter seven. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for is it good? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's a quote that Paul has heard from this Corinthian church, and he wants to address it. So he says, "But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband." Paul has this choice. He has two really easy pathways. He could say one of two things. He could say it doesn't matter who you end up in bed with. And he could say, nobody should end up in bed with anyone. That's what society would tell him to do. In this Greek town, there's a whole bunch of people that think you can do whatever you want. And there's a whole bunch of people that think, no, you shouldn't do anything with anybody. And Paul could easily side with someone and get some sense of support. But he actually says, no, I'm going to take the difficult road. I'm going to take the middle ground. I'm going to say, if you want to be single, that's a great choice. If you want to be married... That's a great choice too. But if you choose to be married, well, I'm gonna tell you some stuff. Because that's gonna come with some cost. In verse 32, he says this, a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Again, first century lenses on for just a second. Does that sound like something a first century man would hear very often in his world? A man should be concerned about pleasing his wife. No one was asking you to do that in the first century until Paul comes along. A married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says there's an option to not get married, and then God gets all your attention. But there's another option to get married, and when you do, that Venn diagram picture, you should be deeply and passionately interested in how you can make that work best for the other person how they can thrive to the best of my ability. I'm going to make this thing thrive for you. I'm going to give you what you need to thrive, and I'm going to give all of my energy to that. That's the picture he creates, that Jordan Peterson quote we began with. Marriage is either tyranny or chaos. It actually continues to say this. Or dialogue properly orientated to love and life more abundant. Dialogue orientated to love and life more abundant. The other week we said that marriage was an invitation to grow together. And I might even say that marriage is an invitation to flourish together. But our temptation in those moments where we want to write one on a piece of paper, even if the other person's writing nine, is to say, do you know what, I'm just just gonna let it go and hope that somehow the thing survives. But what if that's not what we're supposed to To go back to my Michigan couple for just a second with the nine and the one on their pieces of paper, the wife's request of her husband was this, can we start dating again because I want us to work this out, I want this thing to thrive. And so they went off to a restaurant and she began to talk about just what was causing the one on the paper. She said, you know, you go off to work and you go to the church and it feels like that's your relationship and your life seems to matter and this church is now huge and it's growing and you seem to have this vibrancy there but I'm here, and it feels like nothing I do really matters, and I feel like I'm getting left behind, and it feels like I have no way of being productive, and so I need something more to get me off the one on the sheet. And she poured her heart out and then went off to the bathroom, and so while she was gone, he says, I took out a piece of paper and I 
wrote down some things on the piece of paper and she came back from the bathroom and I handed it to her and her instant reaction was, oh, how sweet, he's written me a note telling me I do matter and what I do has value and I am productive. And then she opened it. And what he'd written was a list of ways she could be more productive with her day. And so she left, understandably, the restaurant. And as she left, she yelled back, oh, I know you think God told you to write that, but that was not God speaking to you. It's this other demonstration of just how we struggle with communication. And one can be thriving and one can be struggling. And it takes a brave voice to bring those issues up because we tend to leave them there hoping that we won't disturb the unbalanced building we've built together. A marriage is complicated, but it's complicated because relationships between men and women are complicated. We just see the world differently so often. I've got a video that I'm gonna show you and we'll talk about it in a second, so enjoy. There's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless, and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. <laughs> you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. See, you're not even Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like... There's this achy... I don't know what it is. All my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. I think, I think my favorite part is all my sweaters are snagged. Such a great line. But it's supposed to get to the tension, right, of just not particularly a nail, but so often in a conversation, guys want to fix. Women want to share, and we make that as a generalization, but it's a generalization because it's generally quite often what we find to be true. There's a difference between men and women. C.S. Lewis once said this, a man means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble, not uh, chiefly taking trouble for, uh, sorry, a woman means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble for others. A man means not giving trouble to others. Thus, while the woman thinks of doing good offices and the man of respecting other people's rights, each sex without any obvious unreason can and does regard the other as radically selfish. We often find that we struggle because we see the world differently. And when Paul comes along and says this, both of you be concerned about what the other needs. The husband for the needs of his wife, the wife for the needs of her husband. The obvious tension question is this, how do we know? How do we know or do we just think 
that we know. I think we find ourselves to, to lean into this marriage that Paul paints a picture of that Jesus seems to want for us too. We need to learn how to communicate and yet it's a desperate need, right? We need to learn how to communicate. In the Cold War, there was this moment where Washington and Moscow installed this television that would give the two presidents instant access to each other because they knew the consequence of a lack of communication during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's this standoff with nuclear warheads in play, and there's this moment where World War III is about to start, and they just can't reach each other. There is no line of communication. They're all closed. And when finally the Russian President Khrushchev sends a communique to Washington saying, these are the terms, are these okay? Can we all stand down? It takes 12 hours for the message to get sent and translated, and the world nearly explodes in those moments. Perhaps you've had those moments in a marriage where you say, it feels like we're about to explode here, and we actually just don't know how to communicate. It feels like there's no channel open. We need to be able to communicate. Communication problems is the most commonly cited reason for divorce at 65% of all divorces. The moment the deal breaker is, we just don't know how to connect. Janie Duck says this, in the absence of information, we will connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. <laughs> When we're wrestling and struggling and we say we don't know what's going on here, we'll make it seem as bad as it possibly can be. John Gottman says this, the single greatest predictor for a successful marriage is repairing skills. Of course, this involves having the ability to communicate effectively. We have this desperate need in relationships to communicate and yet we're really bad at communicating. We really struggle to communicate with each other. The researcher, Kenneth Savitsky, wanted to find out how well couples, married couples, communicated. And what he said is this, closeness can lead people to overestimate how well they communicate. Although speakers expected their spouse to understand them better than strangers, accuracy rates for spouses and strangers were statistically identical. This result is striking because speakers were more confident that they were understood by their spouse. What they did is this, they had two couples sit in a room and had them sit facing away from each other on chairs. And the husband or wife was given a prompt, something to say that was somewhat ambiguous. And then they repeated the pattern with complete strangers. And the success rate of getting the information across was about the same with married couples as it was with strangers. As he unpacks it, he says, a wife who says to her husband, it's getting hot in here, as a hint for her husband to turn up the air conditioning a notch, may be surprised when he interprets her statement as a coy, amorous advance instead. <laughs> it's getting hot in here, baby. This is a bold guy that interpreted it that way. I, li I like this guy. I feel like we, we would connect. It's just connection, communication reveals itself regularly to be difficult. George Bernard Shaw said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. We feel like a message has been heard and so often between men and women, between husbands and wives, it hasn't been heard at all. That idea that marriage is an invitation to flourish together, I would add this, that is only possible with good communication. 
after a couple of bumpy years together, after the first year that was pretty easy, as Laura and I found communication was just more difficult than we thought, we came up with this mantra that we said over and over again, everything is better when we talk about it. And yet we too have realized the tension when sometimes you're tempted to write a one on a piece of paper, the temptation is to tiptoe around the thing and hope that you don't disturb it because if you do, it might all fall apart. So if we're convinced that God created us for marriages that flourish, if we believe that we're supposed to enter into these with a heart that says, I want this thing to thrive for you and that each husband and wife should be concerned about the other's needs, Here's a question for us to sort of close with. How do we begin? Because it seems harder than maybe we thought it was to begin with. Well, Paul invites us to a couple of things. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. His picture is maybe you can enter into forgiveness and enter into new stories for your marriage because of the picture of God's love for us. If God can come and love the unlovable, perhaps we can start again and love the other person. Perhaps we can love the person that we share a room and a bed with. But that seems like a big ask at times. And James James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We have already talked about our tendency not really to listen. And guys, some of this we have to own. We are not by nature usually great listeners. And yet we're all often quick to speak, especially to give a reply in a moment of conflict rather than to listen. But in terms of practical advice, that's about as close as the biblical writers give us in terms of communicating well as husbands and wives. So I added a few other thoughts. I think the story that I experienced in Michigan says that someone might have to be brave and speak up. That if you're in your own journals and own thoughts, you're regularly writing ones on areas of your marriage the maybe just tiptoeing around the structure, hoping it survives, is not healthy for anybody. And it might take a brave voice to say this needs to be talked about. Maybe the second one is to be vulnerable. And you might have to share your needs, and that too is hard, especially if you find yourself on the giver side of the giver-taker relationship. I, by nature, am just a giver. What that means is is this. I find it very hard to let anybody do anything for me in any situation. And somewhere there might be your own stuff to deal with there. Maybe there's a call to be vulnerable, to share what we actually need. Maybe there's a call to be listening, to actually enter into that process which actually is harder than it sounds. Roy Bennett says this, listen with curiosity, speak with honesty, act with integrity. The greatest problem with communication is we don't listen to understand, we listen to reply. When we listen with curiosity, we don't listen with the intent to reply, we listen for what's behind 
the words, it seems like this requires an actual intent to know what the other person needs, not just to have a witty retort or quick reply the moment that they're done speaking or perhaps even a few words before they're done speaking. Someone once described this way of incarnational listening that was helpful to me. Tell each other what you want rather than what you don't want. Respond to each other's statements of need with open-ended questions. Express appreciation and gratitude to the spouse who is listening. Be forgiving, and this one's hard. Maybe there's resentment, and maybe there's heart and heartache. And somewhere in those conversations we've talked about over the last few weeks that sometimes there's moments where the marriage is over and that divorce is the journey. And remember, God's love is still greater than your relationship status. But maybe there's also a call to forgive and say, can I believe again in a preferred future? Can I choose to let this go, remembering that when I do, I reflect the God who loved me when I was unlovable? And maybe we get to be hopeful. Maybe we get to dream together again. And instead of saying that this relation operates on tyranny or on chaos, we actually get to dream about what it does look like. Because almost nothing isn't better when two people dream about the possibilities of it. There is no thing that you have, no space that you own, no future that you could imagine that isn't better when the two of you bring your two gifts together and say, what might this look like if we enter into it? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Each of us will have moments in a marriage where on any given area we're tempted to write ones and twos on the piece of paper. And sometimes not because the other person isn't interested, but simply because we don't know there's these moments of conflict. Conversation seems to make it so that there can be a different future. Marriage is an invitation to flourish together that is only possible with good communication. Which brings us to this moment. And, and the moment of communion in the midst of a relationship series has given me something of a conundrum, a fascination. I've, I've kind of contemplated and thought, how do the two fit together? And yet, and suddenly, it all became clear. Because think about what we're about to do. As a community of people, we're about to come to a table that's been around for 2,000 years. Some people call it Eucharist. Some people call it mass, some people call it the Lord's table. But what does it represent? It represents the ultimate healed relationship. It represents the idea that God was seeking for humanity, that Jesus' death and resurrection led to you and I being restored into relationship with God. That's the, the, the central Christian story, that God can restore any relationship, even the most fractured one between human beings and God. And so when we come to this table, we come first knowing we need it. We come bringing that part, that me circle, that gets broken. Perhaps you've never found Jesus as a savior, as someone who loves you, and you come today and you can meet him as the person who gave his life for you but we all come with our own baggage 
the ways that we know we've at times kind of opted out of the relationship, we've opted out of the conversation. The ways we haven't owned up to our responsibilities in it, we, the ways that we haven't been passionate about what that other person needs. And we get to bring all of that junk to this table and find forgiveness. We get to come as couples and say there's times where we know that one of us is writing ones on the table and we desperately need a new story. And so we come to the God who made the universe, who restored the universe, who one day will restore all things. And we know that even in our broken mess, he can bring healing, surprising healing, surprising new stories. We come in the moments where we're part of a relationship and the other person, they feel like they've opted out. They've just said, no, not willing to talk about it. It's not on the table. We come in moments like that and we come to the God who came for his people and we're told he came for his own and his own rejected him. This God knows rejection. We come as people that are widowed or widowers. We've lost the person that used to sit across the other side of the table. We come with our loneliness. This God knows loneliness too. We come with our broken selves We come to a God who knows, who understands, who is passionate for our good, whose love is greater than our relationship status, greater than the numbers that we write on paper. We come because we're told to come. Come because 2,000 years ago, this God said, as long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Remember that I gave my life for you. Let's stand together. Jesus, you know each heart. You know that there are those of us in the room that are afflicted, who are hurting. Whether the grief of a death or the grief of an absent loved one, the grief of a partner that's just They've just gone. They've left. They're they're done. And you know we need to find comfort in this table. So would you bring comfort? Those of us that need afflicting because we're a little too comfortable. If we're honest, we kind of stop participating. It's just been easier to tiptoe around the structure and hope that it doesn't completely collapse but our interests are elsewhere. And we need you to remind us of how passionately you sought for us and that marriage is centered around two people, each passionate for the interests of the other. There are those of us grieving, those of us questioning, And what you do each week is you wander this building coming alongside us as we need you. So in this moment, as people prepare, as eyes are closed, would you begin speaking your good words to our hearts, telling us what we need to hear. As we come to your table, would you remind us that you restore all things 
that there is no relationship that you can't bring healing to, that there is no past you can't forgive. There is no new story that you can't create. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.